You know, I, uh, I have a lot of joy in uh, being one of the pastors here at Foothill Bible Church. Finishing uh, 20 years, actually, um, not too much longer. And uh, of the many, many joys that are, that are mine, I think uh, one stands out among them, and that is the joy of performing, being asked to perform wedding services, wedding ceremonies. I've had the great honor and privilege of being involved in uh, many young couples' lives and to then be asked by them to perform their wedding, and it's a, it's a delight. I love weddings. I think they're just a fantastic time. They're, they're an exciting time. They're a time filled with joy, with hope, and with optimism. It's just a really, really fine time. I also uh, delight in the way uh, weddings are typically done here at Foothill. And, and what I mean by that is that they're, they're generally speaking, a family affair. That, um, that many members of the body are included in the celebration of the wedding. Not, not necessarily everybody, every time, but, there, but every wedding that I've ever been a part of or even attended where I wasn't officiating that, that originated out of this body was well represented in the crowd by people who are part of the body of Christ here at Foothill Bible Church. And that is also really gratifying to me. But speaking of weddings, I, I want to let you in on a secret. Can I do that? Can I let you in on a secret with regard to weddings? Here's the secret. There are, there are many important and significant uh, parts of the wedding ceremony and all the uh, festivities of that day, to be sure. Many, many important and uh, significant pieces. But... Nothing is more significant to that day than the reciting of your wedding vows. It is the premier event of the day. In fact, I can wax so bold as to say that uh, no wedding vows, no marriage. They are what create the marriage bond at that moment in time, both legally and in the eyes of God and his church. The vows are the most significant thing that happens on that day. Beyond that, having your church family there to, to witness your vows even if you don't understand what's going on, <laughs> expresses the reality that the vows are the important thing and the witnesses to the vows are essential to the wedding ceremony. It is very, very significant. And points really, I think, to, to, the, to the importance of living life together as a community of believers. In both the Old and New Testament, the wedding ceremony was a community event. And I praise God that the wedding ceremonies here at Foothill are community events as well. We stand firmly in a long line of biblical history and tradition. 
So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. We are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew and this section of Matthew's Gospel under the heading of Living Life Together in the Community of Believers. Lessons for Living Life Together. Now the passage before us this morning is a passage concerning the subject of divorce. And so one might be tempted to scratch their head a little bit and say, well, how does that relate to the notion of living life together in community? Hang on. Hang on. Now divorce is a difficult subject, to be sure. It is filled with pain. It is filled with heartache. It is filled with sorrow. I don't think there is a single person here this morning who has not been touched by divorce, has not felt the pain of it, either directly and personally or through relationships and close friendships with those who have. It is a difficult, difficult subject. It is a significant subject. It is on people's minds. I know this to be true, by the way, because uh, two years ago, Pastor Vince and I preached a, a five-part sermon series on divorce that sprang from Matthew's gospel way back when we were in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And the topic was first introduced. And we thought the best thing to do at that time was because there is so much confusion surrounding the topic, so much misinformation, so much hurt, so much heartache, that it would be worth the time to, to set aside a five-part series and, and examine what the scriptures have to say on the topic from, from the beginning to the end. And we did that. We looked at what the Bible had to say about divorce and the associated topics of remarriage and so forth. And I tell you, I know it's significant. And the reason I know it's significant is because uh, our sermons go up onto our website and, and up to onto YouTube every week. And, uh, and they typically receive something less than 100 views. The better ones might get, you know, a couple of hundred views. The series on divorce has had thousands of views. One sermon alone has been viewed over 7,000 times. So I know it's a big, big issue. And that people all over the world are looking for help, looking for answers to this really, really difficult topic. So we find ourselves here with it again this morning. And and listen, we didn't go looking for it, it came looking for us. You know, when you preach through the scriptures expositorily, verse by verse by verse, you don't get to pick your topics. You don't even get to pick when you want to deal with them. You don't go looking for them, they come looking for you. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing because otherwise there would be the tendency to avoid things. So we find ourselves here this morning, and, and we're back in this passage, Matthew 19, and, and the way I want to come at it this morning is, is I want to move through it, I hope, somewhat quickly. And the reason I, I say that and, and not give it the, the normal, slower, more thorough treatment is because I've already done that. 
And so if you don't remember that sermon, you've never, it's either you've never seen it or you weren't here or whatever it is, then then I just direct you to go to the website and and watch the whole series, actually, because each one builds on it, on the one prior to it, and they're all essential. So we're going to move through it, I I hope, as they say, somewhat quickly, and then what I want to do is I want to spend some time at the end and, and thinking about the role of the community of believers as it relates to marriage. So that's how I kind of want to approach it, okay? I'll move through the text somewhat quickly and then get to the role of the community of believers with regard to marriage. So here we are in Matthew chapter 19 and beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Kind of a strange little interlude, little vignette. Where does this fit in the, in the chronology of the Gospels? We've been working our way through and uh, trying to pay attention to the chronology of the Gospels. That is the, the three and a half year public ministry of Christ and where do these events fall? And, and so the question to ask ourselves with regard to this is, is where does this fall and, and what's going on here? I mean, at the end of chapter 18, where, where we've just been, been instructed about restorative church discipline and about the, the obligation to forgive and so forth, and now we get this little, this little vignette that says uh, they left Galilee and they, and they came into a region called Judea beyond the Jordan, and, and large crowds followed them, and, and as was his habit, he healed those who were in need while he was there. The region... Of Judea beyond the Jordan. Geographically, we're talking about the area east of the Jordan River, roughly opposite Jerusalem and and south. It is commonly called Perea. If you have a map in the back of your Bible and you were to look at it, you probably would see it labeled Perea. Perea. Perea comes from the Greek preposition peron, which means beyond. Hence, it is Judah beyond the Jordan, or what you would know as Perea. It is now the last six months of the public ministry of Jesus. He has finished in Galilee. His final teaching there in Galilee, in Capernaum, had to do with the topic of restorative church discipline and the obligation to forgive and so forth. And then the way I'm envisioning it, they've got their, their supplies packed, and they head south For Jerusalem, because he's never going back into Galilee, at least not this side of the grave. And uh, and he's got some further work to do, but the cross is about six months away. And and he's going to occupy himself during that six months with a ministry to and from the city of Jerusalem while, while having his base of operations in Perea. Now Matthew captures all of that in two verses. And doesn't really indicate any of it. And the fact of the matter is, you, you need to go to John's gospel to kind of understand what's going on in the last six months of Jesus' public ministry. And John details for us the three trips to Jerusalem. An extended treatment beginning in John 7 and running all the way through John 11. And, and John's gospel fills out the details, as does Luke's gospel. John tells us he went to to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, John 7 through 9. After the confrontation there in Jerusalem, he flees again to Perea. 
He then goes back later for the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, John 10. After the confrontation there, he leaves again and goes back to Perea. John 11, he makes a trip not into the city, but, but pretty close to the city of Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead. Following that, he leaves again and goes back to Perea. So each time he moves in and he leaves. He moves in and he leaves. Why? Well, because the Sanhedrin, who are the leadership and rulers in, this, in the city of Jerusalem and its surrounding area, cannot get to him in Perea. Perea falls under the legal authorities of Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch in Galilee. And so he's able to be close to Jerusalem, to minister in Jerusalem, and yet get away from Jerusalem every time they're ready to pick up stones and to bash his head in. And so that's how he spends his last six months. Mark covers this period of time, by the way, in one verse. He's even more succinct. Matthew covers it in two. Now, I think it's instructive, personally, that of all the, the, the events that occur in the last six months of his public ministry, Matthew chooses to highlight for us here in 19, beginning in verse 3 and following, this whole uh, confrontation over divorce. I think it's also instructive that, that Matthew includes it here with this very little short bridge material in verses 1 and 2, immediately following a discussion of forgiveness. An extended discussion of forgiveness, and then Matthew comes back, summarizes six months, and gives you one event, one vignette, one lesson out of that period of time, and it has to do with divorce. It has to do with divorce. So, here's what we want to do this morning. As we look at the text together, beginning in verse 3, running through verse 12, there are three statements. Three statements about marriage that are foundational in order to live together in Christian community. That's my aim. My aim out of this is to, is to take a look at three statements about marriage that are foundational in order to live together in Christian community. We'll need to move quickly, so let's take a look at the first one, verses 3 through 9. God's design for marriage is earthly permanence. God's design for marriage is earthly permanence. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So they are coming to Jesus, their, their, their goal is nefarious, they are looking to test him, they are looking to trap him, they are looking to trip him up. And so they come to him and they, they bring to him the, the topic of divorce. Chronologically, I, I uh, am convinced that, that they choose this topic for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that Jesus has previously humiliated them during this six-month period of time that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18 on the very topic of divorce. And so they want to circle back around to it. Now, some things we need to understand historically. And I, I can't go into all of it, but go to the website. Look at the sermon. Judaism was deeply, deeply divided over the topic of divorce. Very, very deeply divided. They were not divided over whether a man had a right under the law of Moses to divorce his wife. That was not in doubt. 
Okay? And by the way, in Judaism, only the husband could initiate the divorce. So there was no question in anyone's mind about a man's right to do it. The question, the controversy that swirled in Judaism of Jesus' day were what grounds enabled the man to set in place his, his, his absolute prior, uh, liberty to obtain a divorce. I can do it. We all agree I can do it would be their attitude. But what has to happen in order to allow me to set this in motion? And on that, there was a sharply divided opinion. So I think that they were trying to draw Jesus into that. And, and sort of best case, if he comes down on one side or the other, he's bound to alienate half the crowd. And beyond that, the Pharisees knew that John the Baptist who had spoken out forcefully against Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of Perea's, uh, adulterous uh, uh, divorce and adulterous marriage to his brother's wife Herodias, had ended up getting him imprisoned and beheaded. You remember John 14, or excuse me, Matthew 14 spells that out. And so I suspect that they were, they were thinking, okay, uh, worst case, we can peel off half the crowd. Best case... We'll get him to make some intemperate statement about Herod's marriage, and boom, now we really got him. Okay? In prison, beheaded, dirty work done. So they're trying to trap him. Jesus will not be trapped. He will not be trapped. And so he avoids the trap while teaching the truth. And he does it by referring the whole discussion back to God's original intent for marriage. And then answers and says that, that sexual immorality on the part of your spouse provides moral grounds for divorce, freeing you morally to remarry without committing the sin of adultery. Well, that's what he says. That's what he teaches here. Verse 4. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, the first thing he does is, is he charges them with ignorance of their own scriptures. They are the guardians of the word of God. They are the teachers of the word of God. And he responds to them and says, uh, hello, have you not read? And he, and he lifts the discussion out of the realm of, of what constitutes the ability to set the divorce law in motion and takes it back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 to speak about the original intent and priority of marriage. He doesn't want to talk about the legalities. Legalities that are only necessary because we live in a broken world. So he takes it right back to the beginning, to Genesis, back to Genesis. And basically what he's saying to them is, is if you had understood what it was, taught, what was being taught there, if you had, 
had meditated upon what is being taught there, if you had thought about, talked about, and, and drawn out the implications of what is being taught there, then we would not be having to have a discussion like what technicalities are necessary in order to get rid of my wife. You wouldn't be in that place. You wouldn't be in that place. Verse 7, how do they respond to him? Well, they say to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Listen, over the top again. Okay? They don't go back to Genesis. They're not willing to talk about Genesis. They go immediately to their, to their favorite verse, favorite section in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And, and they quote Deuteronomy here. And they're quoting a, a section of the law that Moses gave with regard to divorce that was designed to protect the rights of the woman from being used as chattel and passed back and forth by, by uh, harsh and unloving men. And they lift out of that the, the legal procedure of the divorce and, and they then speak about it in, in a way that, that it is their prerogative, it is their right. What about that, Jesus? What about that? Why, you know, if, if it's not our right and all of this, then why did Moses say this? Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Because of your hardness of heart. The hardness of heart, by the way, is, is on display right here in this text. It is a refusal to, to even consider what Genesis has to say, what God's intent for marriage is. And, in, and instead, to, to be looking at the law and, and the regulation of, of divorce and the, the consequence of divorce in a fallen world and basically uh, locating their discussion and their, and their disputes here in the technicalities of the law. Now, Jesus does not dispute what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. Because Moses says it under inspiration of the, word, of the Spirit of God. It is the Word of God in Deuteronomy 24. But what Jesus is doing is directing the conversation. That's instructive. That's instructive. We'll talk about it a little bit later. But he directs the conversation. He directs it to the original intent of marriage. And here now he directs the conversation to the, to the reality of what makes divorce such a, such a sorrowful reality anyways. And that's the hardness of the human heart. All right? He says, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, this legal regulation exists. Because of your hardness of heart. What does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, uh, the biblical term speaks not so much about one person's attitude towards another person. So he's not talking here about the attitude of a husband towards his wife or a wife towards her husband. He is talking instead about one's attitude toward God. We are hard-hearted towards God. There may be consequences of that that spill out horizontally, but a hard-heartedness is a hard-heartedness relative to God. And so what he is saying to them here is, is that their attitude towards God 
that demonstrates a, a hardness. That is that they, they, they have no interest in, uh, or understanding of his original purpose in marriage. They don't care. They've set his instructions aside. They've made a mess of it. They are in stubborn rebellion against God. And it is, it is on display here by their, by their unwillingness to abide by God's original intent for marriage. Listen, here's what Jesus is saying in effect. He's saying that the existence of divorce legislation is not a pointer to divine approval of divorce, but to human sinfulness which makes such legislation necessary. That is very important. This reflects the attitude of God toward the topic of divorce. Okay? The existence of legislation permitting divorce, and God does, is not a pointer to saying God approves of divorce, but rather a pointer to the reality that we live in a broken world and stuff doesn't work out the way it ought to and sometimes divorce is necessary. That's what it points to. Jesus goes on now in verse 9, and he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay? The Pharisees, their, their concern is with a man's right to initiate divorce. What has to happen? What does she have to do to, for me to unwind this thing, to put her away? Jesus' approach to the whole topic is, listen, the covenant of marriage was designed to be permanent. It was given by God. It is a good gift to humanity, and it was designed to be permanent. Yet at the same time, Jesus recognizes the sad reality that we live in a broken world, and, and sometimes one partner's immoral behavior breaches the covenant. And when that happens, divorce is morally permissible. What is the breach that he speaks of here? He speaks of the breach of immorality or the word pornea. What does it mean? It carries the idea. It's a, it's a broad term. It carries the idea of sexual content or contact outside of a God-sanctioned marriage. That's pornea. That's pornea. So very quickly here, First statement, God's design for marriage is earthly permanence. Second statement. Second statement. Verses 10 to 12, marriage is not for everyone. Okay? Second statement, marriage is not for everyone. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Meaning that it is a permanent relationship. If that's what it is, and now you've got to remember, the disciples are a product of their culture. So this is a very uh, cross-cultural kind of notion. It is God's idea, God's notion, but the culture has drifted so far from it. That the disciples say, listen, if that's the way marriage is, then it's better not to get married. Now, I don't, we don't know the tone of voice with which they said this. They may have been joking. They may have been cynical. 
They may have been making a, a statement uh, uh, for, the, that for the first time. The, the issue actually kind of crashes in on them, and so they're making a very sober and weighty kind of statement. We don't know. We don't know. We do know what Jesus says. Verse 11, but he, Jesus, said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. What statement? The statement that if this is the way marriage is, that it is an earthly permanent relationship, then it's, then it's better not to get married. And Jesus says not everybody can accept the statement that it's, that if, that it's better not to get married. And he says there's an alternative. No one's forcing you to be married. You enter into the covenant of your own free choice. No one forcing it on you. There is an alternative. Right? Now this alternative is, uh, Jesus says, is given to someone. You see it here? Not all can accept this statement, but, but only those to whom it has been given. That is, uh, who's the giver? Well, God is the giver. And, and, and what is it that he is talking about? He, he is talking about celibacy. He's talking about celibacy. He's saying, this is the way marriage is, and so if, if, if you can't accept that, if, if that's not the, the basis and the terms by which you want to enter into a marriage, then, then celibacy is, is available to you. And God gives celibacy to some people. It's a gift. And, and he gives it to people for the purpose of greater usefulness in the proclamation of the gospel. That's kind of the point of verse 12. Right? For there are eunuchs who are, who are born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Jesus is making an observation. He's saying, you know what? Some men are born without the ability to conceive children. Furthermore, some men, because of surgical procedure, are, are rendered incapable of bearing children. When does that happen? Well, in that day, it would be those who were in charge of the royal harem were made eunuchs. You think of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? The book of Acts. But he says there's a third. There's a third class of individuals here. That is those who are physically able to conceive children. That means they're, they're, they're physically capable and able to enter into a marriage covenant and all uh, that would be involved in that, and yet they refrain. They refrain. Why? in order to devote themselves totally to the service of God. To devote themselves to the service of God. Now, we should not understand by this that, um, that an individual who finds themselves in, the, in this situation is totally devoid of sexual uh, desire and passion. Okay? We should not think, well, then what that means is that they don't care anymore. If they're a man, that women are not attractive to them anymore. Or if they're a woman, that a man is not attractive to them anymore. That's not the point. The point of the matter is, is, is rather that those normal drives that, that come upon most people are, are able to, to, to take a back seat to greater 
uh, greater kingdom work. And God gives a gift and ability to do that. He doesn't take the passion away. What he does is, is he gives one a, a, gr a much greater desire that, that overcomes those normal passions. Okay? The gift of celibacy. The gift of celibacy. So, God's design for marriage is earthly permanence. Marriage is not for everyone. And then the third statement that I wanted to spend a little time talking with you about this morning. Number three, marriage is a community affair. Marriage is a community affair. Now, this is going to sound strange to your ears. It's going to sound strange to your ears, just like it sounded strange to the ears of the disciples. And the reason is, is because we have been culturally conditioned as well. All right, history lesson. On September 4th, 1969, then California Governor Ronald Reagan signed into law a bill which began what I call the privatization of marriage in America. It was the so-called no-fault uh, divorce legislation. Okay? It was our conservative icon, Ronald Reagan, who signed the law. Okay? And what happened was it began the path of privatization of marriage. Within 15 years, 49 of the 50 states had adopted similar legislation. Okay? So by the middle of the 80s, it is the way it is. The way it is. Fundamentally, what happened through that legislation and as it was worked out in various state houses around the country was that now rather than a spouse having to prove that their, that their spouse violated the marriage covenant, instead they were free to divorce for any reason or no reason at all, which is unreconcilable differences. Okay? The privatization of marriage. It went from what was a public reality that required proof in a court of law that there had been a violation of the marriage covenant had now been entirely left to the couples to decide themselves. Nobody else can speak into it. Predictably, divorce rates skyrocketed. Divorce rates in this country skyrocketed in the two decades following the implementation of no-fault divorce. These are, these are historical facts. You can check them yourself. The institution of marriage, as it had been known in this country for hundreds of years, was under serious pressure. It was beginning to crumble. Now, I would suggest to you that there were, the foundations were rotten long before that. There was not this particular law that, that caused it to crumble, but it codified a reality that for most people, marriage is a personal, private affair, but out of my life, you've got nothing to say to me. And yet, we invite everybody to our wedding. Isn't that interesting, huh? 
We invite them to witness our vows, and when the vows are, are being violated, we say, stay away from me. You got nothing to say. Beloved, listen to me. Listen carefully. When marriages fail, the Christian community suffers. Okay? Am I my brother's keeper? Answer? Yes, we are. We are. I have an interest in you, a vested interest in you. You have a vested interest in me. You have an interest in my marriage. I have an interest in yours. And we're together in this. Listen, when marriage fails, the Christian community suffers. How? Well, it starts with this. The reputation of Christ is tarnished in the community. It's tarnished. Beyond that, devastatingly deep hurts and heartaches come to family and friends who care about the couple. They bear the pain of it. Children from troubled marriages have increased insecurities. They carry scars of conflicts that they've witnessed in their childhood throughout their adult lives. It is not a victimless situation. Young people suffer. They become afraid of commitment, lifetime commitments. So rather than marry, they drift towards cohabitation. Right? You've heard it. You wouldn't buy a car without trying it out. Right? Isn't that the way it's, the argument is framed? And so what do we do? Well, we're going to live together to, to see whether we're compatible. Well, why? Well, because, uh, you know, we don't want to be part of the divorce statistics. Cohabitation is, is, is on the rise. In this. I mean, it is a huge issue. Huge issue. Children being born out of wedlock is now becoming the norm. Crime. And poverty increase as a result of broken marriages. Now, the Bible is concerned for the poor, the poor and the widows, right? Who are the poor and the widows in our contemporary, wealthy 21st century country? country? It is single moms. It is single moms. There is no question about it. They are economically hurt in this whole process. The church elders suffer. They're torn away from, from shepherding opportunities and responsibilities widely among the body, and they instead, uh, instead spend an incredible amount of time and energy and anguish working with a couple in a troubled marriage, and sadly to say, often with no discernible improvements. No discernible improvements. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. One way to strike the shepherd is to absorb them in your problems. Marriage fails, the Christian community suffers. Suffers. Conversely, when marriage flourishes, the community benefits. The community benefits. How? The reputation of Christ and, and his saving work are showcased. 
right? The home and the church become, a, become an atmosphere of love and, and they become a laboratory of forgiveness. People, including children, have a, have a, a sense of peace, a sense of well-being, a, 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 a stability to their lives. Prosperity increases. Prosperity increases. Optimism for the future grows. People are, people are willing to, to make long-term sacrifice and, and commitment because they have a hope for the future. And evangelistic opportunities abound. Evangelistic opportunities abound. All right, let me pause here for a minute. I know that there are many who have experienced the pain of divorce. I do know that. I don't know all of you, so I don't know everybody's personal details, but I know many of you to that level. And it would be really easy, and, and I, I pray that I haven't communicated to this point in such a way that you feel like I am just beating you up. That is not my goal. It is not my intention. If I have, please forgive me. Please forgive me. But this topic, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. Listen. God is a God of second chances. God is a God of grace and mercy. God is long-suffering. If divorce is, is part of your background, there is, it is painful, I know. And, and, and listen, there is, there is sin involved. Always in divorce. It doesn't mean that you are the sinner, per se, the guilty party, but there's always sin involved. So that means there's always hurt involved. Listen, if you were, if you were divorced in a, in a biblically permissible way, you are free to remarry and move on. If you were divorced in a way that is, that is legally right but morally wrong, and again, I have to direct you to the series to, to fill that out, God forgives. God forgives. And, and God pours his blessing and his mercy and his grace upon his forgiven children, doesn't he? Is there anyone here, anyone here, who is not deeply in need of the grace of God? Hmm? If it's not this topic, it's that topic, right? So understand I stand here before you as a sinner saved by grace, speaking to sinners saved by grace. Okay? But as a church community, we cannot keep the blinders on. We cannot be business as usual. We cannot drink the toxic waters of our own culture that, is, that is absolutely hates God and is destroying the foundations and pretend it's okay. And to say, it's my business. Get out of my life. We cannot do that. We dare not do that. Marriage is intensely evangelistic. Did you know that? Marriage is intensely evangelistic. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. Throughout the history of the Christian church, the, the, the marriages of his God's people have stood out like a, like a, 
a, a light on a hill in the midst of a dark culture. That has been true since the days of the, the pages of the New Testament. Listen, the Roman Empire was a moral disaster. And a new people of God called out of that cesspool, saved by grace, Jew and Gentile who hated each other's guts, put together in a body of Christ, and now loving one another and, and living for God and involved in one another's lives and, and, and building up wholeness and truth and, and goodness. It stands out. And it did and it does. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, speaking about marriage, he says that marriage illustrates the deepest spiritual reality of Christ and his church. Beloved, when God created and designed the good gift of marriage, he did so not just to bless his creation, which he did, and he does, but he did it so that it would be a living, breathing, worldwide, irrepressible illustration of the most profound reality of Christ and his church. What that means is that every single marriage speaks about Christ and the church. It is unavoidable. The question is, what message does the marriage communicate? Blasphemy or glorious gospel truth? But every marriage communicates. My marriage communicates. Your marriage communicates. You cannot avoid it. And a Christian marriage gloriously preaches the gospel if we will open up our homes and our lives and let people look in. Well, let them look in. Because a Christian marriage is not a, a place in which there are no problems. A Christian marriage is not a place where, where there are no disagreements. A Christian marriage is not a place where, where sharp words don't occasionally get spoken. A Christian marriage is a place where people forgive and are forgiven. And that is glorious gospel truth. Looks like I'm going to owe the nursery a box of C's candy. <laughs> okay, here's what I want to do. Just, I want to lay out some, some thoughts, just four of them. Okay. I, can't, I can't develop them all. I'm not going to try to develop them all. I want to put them there. I'm going to give a little, little flesh on the bones. My hope, my prayer, my goal in this is to stimulate your own thinking, your own discussions. Okay, as to how to, how to run with this. So, so may God enable me to, to, you know, light the fuse and then let's run with it. But how can we as a community of believers, here's the question, how can we as a community of believers who have a vested interest in marriage help one another? Okay? That's the question I want to address. How can we as a community of believers who have a vested interest in marriage help one another?
All right, four ideas. Here they are. First, we can recognize and celebrate celibacy among our unmarried people. We can recognize and celebrate celibacy among our unmarried people. Now, whether that celibacy is a lifetime calling or a, or a temporal situation, how does one know whether one's celibacy is a temporal calling or a lifetime situation? How would one know? You won't until you get to the end of your life. Okay? You, you get that? You understand that? Okay, yeah, yeah, I know a lot of young men, you know, bachelor to the rapture, but, you know, that's just frustration speaking. Okay? <laughs> we need to celebrate this gift of God. We need to celebrate it. We need to pray for, we need to encourage, we need to minister to, and we need to release to ministry those among our congregation who find themselves in an unmarried state. Whether that turns out to be a lifelong gift from God or whether it's a temporary situation. In either case, what we need to avoid is an attitude that singleness is the disease that has to be gotten over or cured. Okay? And, and inadvertently, and I would say in particular, married people inadvertently can communicate just that notion. I'm so sorry, honey, that you have the disease of singleness. Okay? But, but don't worry, God will provide a spouse for you. Okay? Don't ever say that to somebody. Don't ever say that. You don't know that. Are you God? That you can say that to somebody? I know we mean well when we say it. We're trying to take the sting out of it. Believe me, it doesn't take the sting out of it. You cannot say that. Are you in the place of God? So stop the good... Expunge it from our vocabulary. Or other things like, uh, you know, if you were to do this or you were to do that, then, uh, then you'd get married. Thank you, dear Abby. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Part my hair differently, you know, different, different shirt. Grow a beard, shave a beard, you know, whatever. I mean, there are things, I get it. You know, if a guy needs, needs deodorant, then tell him that, okay? Get, but, <laughs> but be a close friend and tell him that. But, but, but this whole extreme makeover that if you just went through that, you would get a, mar get a spouse. Come on. That is not helpful. So let's not do that. Okay? Let's not do that. That's not loving. Here's another one. Just kind of thinking in these ideas. When we're planning church events, let's not set up all the tables with even numbers of chairs. Let's not set them up with six or eight or ten. Let's, let's set up tables with odd numbers of chairs so that people can sit down together. And all the married couples aren't at one table and all the, the those that, are, that are, find themselves in a position of being unmarried are, are forced to either awkwardly try to buddy up or, or sit all by themselves. We don't still don't think. I, I don't think. I'm saying this to you, and I'm talking to myself. I just don't think. Shame on me. Shame on me. We can encourage the unmarried. 
were the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to turn you there. But he speaks there in, in, in verses 32 to 34 about those who are in a position of having an undivided heart, right? And he says that those who are married have a divided uh, sense of affections and, and, uh, and responsibilities. Those that find themselves in an unmarried situation do not have the responsibilities of a spouse and thus they are undivided and able to be highly used in the kingdom of God. So let's celebrate celibacy. Okay? That's idea number one. Number two. In the spirit of Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 and following, we can pursue those among us who are struggling in their marriage with the goal of, of helping them learn how to resolve conflict, how to be reconciled, how to forgive grievances, past, present, and future. Don't you think that would be a good idea? Now, if we're going to do this, it's going to require two things. It's going to require a, a willingness on our part to let someone look into our life, and it's going to be countercultural because we are all about privacy. And yet, we'll blab our lives over Facebook. But that's another sermon for another day. Right? But we're about privacy. We'll let you in only so far because we've got a carefully, you know, manicured image that we don't want to let you beyond. So it's going to require vulnerability on our part, and vulnerability requires trust. I've got to trust you before I'm going to let you in because I do not want to be wounded. So what that means is that, listen, we must swear off of gossip. Is that fair? We must swear off of gossip. We must be committed to keeping our mouths closed. When someone shares something with us of that kind of private nature, it needs to stay in confidence. And this is what happens. We tell one close friend and we say, I don't know if I should tell you this. Okay, I'll tell you. But promise you won't tell anybody. Oh, no, I'll never tell anybody. But the one person that I'm close to, right? And so then it begins to move. It begins to move. We need to be, have an unbending commitment to forsake the sin of gossip. Several years ago, we, uh, we implemented in this congregation, I think, one of the best things we have done in a long time. And that is, uh, is we were able to, to train a number of couples uh, in some, some basic skills to do premarital counseling. We, by the grace of God, we get to do a fair number of weddings. For, for a body of our size, we do a fair number of weddings. And so we've been able to, to involve married couples into doing the premarital counseling. It's not all done by, you know, by the pastors or the elders anymore. It's, it's spread out among the congregation, and it's been fantastic. It's been fantastic. And part of the commitment for those couples is to, is to follow up on that, that young couple that they've been doing premarital counseling for a year, their first year of marriage. So kind of come alongside them and help them through that first year of marriage. And, and there's a relationship now to be able to do that. There's some trust that's been built and there's been the ability to actually speak into somebody's life. And, it, and it's very exciting. Well, let me just say this. If you are one of those mentor couples, 
please fulfill your obligation to follow up in that first year. Please do not let that go by, okay? It's a big obligation. It's an important obligation. Please follow through. If you would like to be considered to be one of those mentor couples, then talk to one of the elders because we would be very interested in training and releasing to ministry several others. So that was idea number two. Idea number three. In the, in the imitation of Jesus, we can direct our thinking and our conversations away from what constitutes a valid reason to sever a marriage. Replacing it with a, with a deep and thoughtful desire to understand, to teach, and to practically implement the implications of God's design for marriage as he has revealed it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Okay, do, you, do you get where I'm going with this? The Pharisees uh, spent their entire time talking about on what basis can we institute the divorce. And you know what? It's a sad thing to say, but that is often what our conversations devolve to. Hypothetical. If this happens and this person does this and that, can I divorce them? Or I knew somebody, you know, was that Okay. Let's, let's turn away from that approach and let's turn back to, you know, back to Genesis, to, to original intent. So let's, let's elevate marriage and God's design for marriage by, by thinking seriously and deeply upon the implications of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and then, and then begin to teach it. In whatever venue we have opportunity, in our homes, in, in uh, men's and women's, women's Bible studies, and in, in, in the teaching ministries of the church. Listen, Paul includes in Ephesians chapter 5 the, the ethical um, implications of the gospel. All right? He says we were, we were saved for good works, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I remember Micah preached a really fine sermon on that passage. If you want to look for the good works you've been saved to do, you can begin your search in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, okay? Because that's where Paul begins to spell them out. And in chapter 5, he speaks about marriage. And he is speaking about the new man in Christ, the new woman in Christ. In Christ, with the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, with the, with the, with the uh, slavery of sin broken in our lives, we have the ability to recapture some of what was lost in Adam's fall. Maybe you never thought about Ephesians 5 in that way, but, but think about what Paul says to the husband and to the wife and look back to Genesis and see the correspondence. Okay, can we, can we completely undo the curse? No, not until Messiah brings his kingdom. But, but we can live at a, at a plane and at a level that the world cannot. Because I, we've got the Spirit of God. I've got the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of God. Okay, so we can recover a portion of paradise lost in marriage. We just need to think about it, talk about it, teach it, and do it. Fourth and finally, we can refuse to give up the public square or be cowered into silence with regard to those who do not share a biblical view of marriage. 
okay? Refuse to give up the public square. That means do not withdraw from the conversation. When we find ourselves in situations, whether you're a student in, you know, in high school or on a college campus or whether you're having a talk around the coffee pot at work or, or whatever place we find ourselves, we can and should speak for righteousness. Now, it's going to require discernment as to how and to when and to in what way speak, to be sure. For some people, it will, it, their conscience will drive them towards an active participation in the political process. Okay? For some. And that can be people donate to political candidates, people are involved in, in campaigns, there's all kinds of things. But certainly the opportunity to vote is a privilege we have. Be informed and be aware. For others, it will take the form of a bold speaking or writing kind of ministry. Certainly Al Mohler comes to mind, if you're familiar with Al Mohler's both speaking and writing ministry with regard to many significant issues, but certainly the issue of marriage. Okay? Now a little caveat here. Be careful on Facebook, lobbing Facebook, you know, mortar shells. Okay? A lot of heat, not much light. So if you really care about a person's soul, take the conversation to them eyeball to eyeball. Okay? Or, or write it down, not on Facebook, on a piece of paper, pray about it, show it to a third party, let them read it before you post it up. Okay? We probably, any of us that are social media users, I think we can all probably say that there are times when we have pushed, post, or send, and we... Wish we could have had it back, right? Once it's gone into cyberspace, it's there. It's there. So maybe a bold speaking ministry is what the Lord has for you. Maybe a writing ministry is what the Lord has for you with regard to the topic of marriage and its implications. Third, maybe it's just this, and this is probably what it is for most of us. It's, it's a simple clear, compassionate conversation with an individual over a cup of coffee. It's caring about them as a person and beginning to bring the truth to bear in their lives. Listen, people do not get married intending to get divorced. When it happens, there's pain. And the last thing a person needs is condemnation the last thing they need. All of these and more are going to require prayer. They're going to require wisdom. They're going to require discernment. We're going to need to reject the, you know, kind of the shrill, hateful, uninformed rhetoric constantly spewing out. Just think about this. Think about the woman at the well in John 14, huh? You think about that. That woman had been married and divorced multiple times. Jesus speaks to her, doesn't he? But he doesn't really focus on that because that's not her biggest problem. 
He approaches her with, with a tenderness and a compassion, and yet there is truth, and the Spirit of God moves in her life, and she, and she comes to know the Messiah and lead her village to him. Then think about Jesus' most strident and vocal criticism. It's reserved for the religious authorities of his day, right? The Pharisees who had no compassion, who twisted the word of God, who judged themselves superior to everyone else and, and, and used their own interpretations of the scriptures to beat everyone down. What would God have us be? What would God have us be? Let's pray. Father, may your spirit cause us to remember that which is true and helpful and to forget that which is not. Help us to be a loving, compassionate people, firmly rooted in the truth, willing to open up our hearts and lives to one another, that we might grow together as a community of believers. That the gospel would shout forth from this place. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.